Good morning. It's wonderful to be here. I love camp. It's just great. <clears throat> I did drive up this morning, though, and I had plenty of time. And then, apparently, you guys have gotten some rain. And it's not raining at all in Des Moines, and so I'm driving, and I'm like, oh, I can make good time. Air quotes, you know what that means. And uh, somewhere north of Ames, the, 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 it descended right there. And my wipers are doing this. And do you know what always happens uh, when you use your wipers and you haven't for a long time? You realize, I needed to replace those. And so I've got these, like, strings. <laughs> it was a good drive up. Uh, yeah, today we want to talk about discipleship and the Word of God and using them together. So I'm really excited to talk about this topic. I've had the opportunity down at the Bible College to disciple some guys, and I have been discipled myself. And I remember thinking, this is, oh man, discipleship, that's really complicated, and you've got to have like a 13-week plan, or like, ah, ah, what are you, you going to do with this? Um, but I didn't really ask for it, just some dude shows up one day and wants to be discipled. I'm like, okay, yeah. And it was like trial and error, trial and error. And so part of this talk is informed by my own experiences of not knowing how to do it and then figuring it out by doing it the wrong way. And then the other part of the talk is because I'm really convinced that God's word should be the center of all discipleship. Now, it doesn't mean every time I talk to a guy or every time you talk with a guy, I'm going to exposit six chapters of Leviticus. I'm not going to do that. It would never happen again. It would be no second meetings. Um, but I do think there's some practical advice that we can see in God's word that will help us understand how to do this. But before we get there, we got to understand what we're talking about. So the first thing I want to talk about is the disciple. Now, I'm sorry you have a big blank page of notes. I've tried to take that into account when I have my PowerPoints here. If you're a note taker, if you're not, you're not going to miss out much. Okay, so what's a disciple? Now, I missed yesterday, so maybe this has already been defined. I'm like looking it up. You could look it up in the web. You could look up it on dictionary. I used a Bible dictionary because then it's like in the Bible sphere. And so this is what I found. Uh, a disciple is a follower. It's a really simple definition. It's not super complicated. And so this was exactly word for word what I got out of one of my Bible tools. It said a follower, a pupil, which is a student, or an adherent of a teacher so if you, now that kind of, the teacher word there might throw you. So Pastor Kotner just said he had Greek with me, and so in one sense he was my Greek disciple. But that's not exact, I mean that's sort of it, partly. Um, by the way, he was a great student, and he, if I was clear, he was very focused and intense, which surprises you all, doesn't it? Right? He's a really just, you know, kind of lackadaisical guy here. And uh, yeah, so, it, but, so you might say that, but it's not exactly like that. So don't just think I've enrolled in a class and I'm here at an institution and I'm doing this. That's it's not what we're talking about. I mean, it's partly related. All right, another definition is a student or a learner, which almost makes it sound like, well, it's even more like a classroom-only situation. Uh, so here's, here's the definition. This one's a lot more in-depth, in so hang with me. It says, in the Greek world, which is kind of where this word is first used, a disciple normally referred to an adherent of a particular teacher or a religious philosophical school, and it was the task of that disciple to learn, study, and pass along the sayings of the teacher or of the, or of the master. And so here you get this idea that if you think about like Plato or Aristotle or any of those Greek philosophers, they're, number one, they're wearing a toga, and number two, they walk around, there's these like little guys like following them or like people who are like wannabes. 
And so when they get to the market or whatever and they start arguing and the, the little young guys you're trying to learn try to argue and they get it wrong and then Socrates tells them how to do it right. Actually, he wouldn't tell them. He'd just ask them questions until they were mad at him. Uh, if you know anything about, oh, I got one laugh from the other guy in the room. Okay. <laughs> So at this point, it seems like this is a really distant idea, like we don't have this, but it's not that. If you hang around someone regularly, whether you intend to or not, you're going to partly become a, like a disciple of that person. If you look at the groups of friends that you have, you all probably have common jokes and common stories and common things you love, and probably you didn't have all of those, and you got those by hanging around those people. Well, in a sense, that's what discipleship is like. So there's actually some good examples in today's culture that we do have that are like this. All right, so here's my illustrations. Number one, if you're in a trade, you're going to get this. The journeyman and the apprentice. The journeyman and the apprentice. My dad does HVAC, which for non-trade people, that's heating, air conditioning. I don't know. I don't actually know what those mean, but ventilation, I think, maybe. Yeah, so he can, he can fix any air conditioner, any heater. He's actually very mechanical. He can fix anything, unless it's a computer. He can't do that. No computers. And so he's done that his whole life. Well, when he got into that trade, for the first four years, generally it's a four-year apprenticeship, you're working at the company, but they don't let you do anything by yourself because they don't trust you, and things are expensive. And so for four years, you basically tag along with someone else. They tell you what to do. They show you what to do. When they tell you to do it, you have to listen and pay attention to their instruction. When you do it wrong, they rebuke you or they tell you, hey, you did that wrong. Don't do that, dummy, and maybe some other words. And then they correct you and they say, no, no, this is how you do it, in more corrective words. And then on the whole, what's their goal? At the end of the four years, you'll be trained in the right way to work. And they'll let you release you onto some job, and they won't think you're going to burn the whole building down. Now, whatever trade you're in, if you've been in one of those, you get that. But if you're like an, like a white-collar job, like an accountant or something like that, it's not always the same, but we have that too, okay? The intern and the boss. You know what an intern is, right? If you're an intern, you work for free or not for much money, and you tag along with the main accountant or the main CEO or whatever. And why do you do an internship? Because you want to get experience. And so other companies will be able to say, oh, he must know something. We can hire him. He's not totally ignorant of what's going on. But let's be honest. What do interns normally do? They get coffee and dry cleaning, right? I mean, that's it. You're like, hey, the boss says go do this. And you're like, okay. So not, that's not the kind of internship, but the idea is the same as the apprentice and the journeyman. Now, probably the most spiritual illustration that probably has the closest ties uh, to what we're going to talk about today is the master and the Padawan. All right? So, you know, you don't want to release a Padawan to go quell some uprising because he'll probably cut his hand off with his lightsaber. He needs to be with that Jedi man. Okay, I'm just kidding. All right, so you get the idea, though. But even in something silly like Star Wars... That's the idea is that these Jedi aren't full Jedi until they've lived and breathed and ate and moved and worked with the master Jedi to learn how to do it. It's literally not a bad picture of discipleship. It's fraught with Eastern mysticism because George <laughs> Lucas was a Buddhist Methodist and that's the words he uses for himself, but the basic idea, okay. So uh, what if you wanted to be a growing disciple, okay? What would, what would a growing disciple in your mind look like? 
Here's what I would say. I got four ideas of what I think a growing disciple looks like. I think, number one, it's someone who knows and studies the Word of God. Think in your mind of whatever well-known Christian writer, author, pastor, whether currently today or any time in church history, think of whoever it is and then ask yourself this question, do you think that they never ever studied the Word regularly? I bet you if they're a legitimate like Orthodox Christian and not like a health and wealth prosperity guy, you will say, oh yeah, no, they're actually known for studying the Word. So I would say that's just a hallmark of being a disciple. Secondly, I think it's someone who knows when they're sinning. Now, this comes in time, but because of the Holy Spirit, uh, you, you'll, be, you'll know that you're sinning, but often they've had other people in their lives correcting them or rebuking them when they sin. I, I don't think of any Christian, uh, past, present, and definitely not future, who would solo be able to always see their own sin. We need other guys in the body to help us see what we're lacking. And then I would say that it's someone who knows how to get back on the right track. So if I have lived my life in this one area according to the flesh in some, some manner, and it, maybe a fellow believer has, has called me out on it in a loving and gentle way, of course, because we're guys and we're always gentle, uh, or maybe just uh, I've read the Word of God and it's done that, <clears throat> I know how to get back in the correct path. Like, I know what to do. And then lastly, I would say it's someone who's consistently growing in righteousness, I know there can be times where you backslide and you're not walking with God, but I think if you're really a disciple, there should be a consistent trend of growth, growth of pro- progressive sanctification. So these might seem capricious or haphazard choices, but I think I can justify why these are a really good picture of what it means to be a disciple. Now, I want these to raise a question in your mind. I want you to be asking this question How could I become a disciple like this? How could I get my life to be in a place where I'm starting to know and study the word, where I can now identify sin in my life, where I can learn that somehow, where I can know how to correct that and get back into the correct way of living, and that on the whole, my life trends toward uh, growing in consistent righteousness and righteous behavior? Like, how could I do that? Well, if that's really an accurate picture of a disciple, there's really only two ways. Number one, if you want to become a disciple, I think you got to imitate a disciple. If you want to become a disciple, I think you need to imitate a disciple. Again, in your friend group, or if you have like a well-known television personality you follow, some sports hero, You'd be surprised if you stopped and thought about that person's life and then thought about what you do. You'd be surprised if there's not any connection going the other direction and shaping you. That's a very normal thing to happen. And so this is actually a biblical thought. Uh, Paul uses it all the time. So I want to look at some verses that talk about imitating or copying. 1 Corinthians 11.1. Paul tells the Corinthian believers, be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now, he's not saying be imitators of me all the time, like if I sin. But he's saying imitate me as I try to follow Christ. I think he's saying that on purpose because we're natural imitators. You're always imitating something. And he uses this frequently. Uh, 
2 Timothy 1.13, he says, follow the pattern, which is very similar in thought. Okay, follow the pattern, imitate, of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. 2 Thessalonians 3, 7 through 9, he says, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. And the specific issue he's talking about there is being lazy or a busybody. So he goes on to say, Because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. So Paul was all about being an example so that others would know how to imitate him. In fact, in the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, Paul's giving instructions to the two pastors there, and in it he calls them, he says, you know, you live this way because you're to be an example to the flock. An example. What's an example? Something we should all try to imitate. He goes on to say in Philippians 3.17, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So it's this like group imitation, like look for those who follow and do the things that they do. Philippians 4.9, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So here again, Paul is saying, you know how I live my life in front of you. Do that. And then uh, lastly, Ephesians 5.1, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. He could say obey God. He could say live the way God wants you to. But he actually chooses to say look at the character of God and imitate him. Be like him. Now that actually makes a lot of sense because what was our original design in the garden? We are, we are image bearers of God. Like my design and your design, no matter what you want, no matter what you think, is to look like your heavenly Father in everything that you do. And anytime you want to be your own person or do your own thing, very likely you're walking away from that image. And that's part of righteousness and holiness and growth and godliness is trying to go back to being a representative, a picture of God the Father. All right. So I think the first way you could do it is to imitate a person and I'll give you one more illustration. I was, I gotta be careful, so I'm gonna shroud this story plenty good. I was in a situation where I was observing something, and the thing that happened was not good. It was bad. And it was one of those things that if I told you what it is, everyone you'd be like, that was horrible. I can't believe blah, blah, blah happened, or blah, blah, blah did that. And generally, I'm a, I could see something like this and get pretty like, really critical of it and really even, even a little bit slanderous of it. But I was sitting next to my buddy, and he's a Christian. He's a Christian minister. He's a full-time minister of some sort. And he would have thought the exact same thing. In fact, the thing that happened, he would have had more reason to, to think that's just not right. Now, this is not like a full-out sin thing, okay? So it's not like I'm going to say, hey, no big deal that there was a sin. It was, it, it was something that you're like, I can't believe that happened. That was, in, that was, that was irresponsible. That never should have happened. <clears throat> and I was like the flesh, okay? The flesh is coming up in me. I'm, I'm getting ready to like unload. And I'm texting my buddy right next to me. And he just says, we got to be gracious. Let's, let's be gracious. And his demeanor was gracious. He was kind. He actually tried to point out some good things that took place right then too. 
And it was interesting. He didn't have to stop and say, Andy, are you being critical? Andy, are you being arrogant? Andy, are you blah, blah? Are you thinking the best right now? He didn't have to say any of those things. He simply, in front of me, was an example. And it was interesting. I didn't have to try that hard to do the right thing. That was weird. He just he did the right thing, and I'm like, oh, yeah, we, I, should, I should do that. It was very natural for me to do what my godly friend was doing right next to me. I didn't even fully understand why. Now, later, as I looked in the Word, I'm thinking, oh, yeah, that's, that's exactly how I should have responded. I should think the best. I should be gracious. I should be encouraging in how I speak. I should only say things that are edifying. And all of those things I was about to not do. And because my buddy is doing the right thing right in front of me, and I'm seeing it, and I think because the Spirit inhabits me because I'm a believer... I behaved rightly, not to my own credit. And so this idea of imitating that's wrapped up at the center of being a disciple, I think there's some huge implications. Now, we're going to go down to the, we're trying to get to the word. That's what we really want to talk about today. Let's plant one thought, though. You can only imitate what you see. And you can only imitate what you're thinking about and loving. I can't imitate something that I've never heard of before or I've never spent serious time thinking. To imitate means I'm like giving it some careful thought, I'm pondering it. And so what you give careful thought to all day long and what you ponder all day long, don't be surprised if you begin to imitate that, whether you even realize you're doing it or not. All right, we don't, that's not the direction we're going. This, that's a really good thing to stop here, or to drop here. Now, one more thing. Um... In all of the four things that we just shared, I should go back to them really quick, maybe. Way back here. Got one more thing I forgot to say. Okay, in all these things here, studying the word, knowing you're sinning, getting back on track, and growing in righteousness, how many of those are a solo action? Now, I can, I can study the word myself. But, I mean, I, I'm not really ever alone when I do that, if I'm a believer. Like, the Spirit is in me, and the Spirit has a job to convict me of sin and righteousness and the life to come. And so, there's a lot going on inside of me that I may not be aware of. How can I really correct myself, or how can I rebuke myself when I'm sinning? I mean, I can be mad at myself and regret what I did. But the point of that is that someone else sees what I don't see and helps me see it. And correcting is like someone knows how to do it the right way and I don't and they show me. Have you ever had like a little kid and they're trying to like do something and they can't do it the right way and they keep trying and trying and they're getting frustrated and maybe the tears forming and you're like, hey, can I help you? And they're like, no. You know, I'm going to do it. And in my mind, I'm like, no, you're not. I've been watching you for 10 minutes, bud. This is not happening. And in a minute, you're going to break something and I'm going to stop you. Uh, all of these you can't do this on your own. You can't just live the Christian life as a man all by yourself. Like You need other guys. You need other believers. And this idea of imitation, I can't do this unless I'm around someone who I can imitate. So if as a guy you're not connected to people in your church or you're not connected to any other godly believers, maybe there's none around you. And if that's you, Man, you should reach out to someone here and maybe you can make a long-term thing happen. But most of the time, we guys don't want to get that close to other guys because we know the correction's coming or we know the rebuke might come. Like, I don't want to tell guys what I do when I shouldn't be doing it because they'll just tell me, don't do that, <laughs> right? 
And so there's a social element to this, I think. All right, imitate. Secondly, what's another way to become a disciple? Learn. Like, you need to learn about being a disciple. So think of any hobby you, com- you, 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 you play or whatever, build or sew or I don't know. Well, if you like leather work or something, like I have a friend who does leather work. Like, my buddy roasts coffee now. Uh, actually, there's a coffee roaster in the room right here with a lot of brains and Bibles. Uh, there's, a, there's, there's, there's a lot of hobbies in the room. Did you just pick that hobby up and do it? Or did you have to like study and think about it? Like I like disc golf. I didn't know how to serve. I literally went disc golfing with a guy who was better than me and he taught me like the serve step thing. And man, after I did that, I could throw away further. My arm would hurt too. But, but Or like um, if you play a sport, like you don't just go out and play the sport perfectly and figure it out on your own. You either have to talk to someone or you got to read a book or watch a YouTube video and like figure it out. So there's some study involved. And so for being a disciple, I don't think I could ever imagine any of the really wise Christians, either today or down through church history, who haven't spent serious time studying God's word. I mean, your pastors don't just sit around all week twiddling their thumbs and then wake up Sunday morning and ask God to like possess them so they can preach. Okay, If that happens, you have a demon-possessed pastor and you need to get a new one. That's not Christian. That's charismatic, which is also not Christian. Okay, that's, woo! Too much coffee this morning. <clears throat> yeah, thank you. Sorry about that. Maybe I drank Folgers and didn't know it. Okay. Uh, that would never happen, trust me. But my point is, your pastors have something to feed you with because they've fed themselves all week on it. And so if you want to grow and you want to be a disciple, Look back at the last month. Have you been in the Word? Look back at the last year. Have you been in the Word? If you haven't, is there a connection? I really never get in the Word except on Sundays. And man, this is what my life looks like. Do you see any correlation? Because honestly, that might be the thing you need to hear this weekend. I need to get into the Word. I need to start developing study skills. All right, so let's talk about the Word of God. Because I think the Word of God is essential to discipleship. I think it is the thing you need that without it, you'll never become a disciple of God. You'll never, ever do it. And this whole weekend's about how to become disciples and how to make disciples. If you think of the Great Commission, you've got to share the gospel, and then you've got to teach people to obey and to live it. And so when you're teaching them, what are you teaching them? Hopefully you're teaching them the word. So here is the key verse we're going to use today. The two verses, this is what we're going to walk through. We're going to spend the rest of our time thinking about this verse. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says this, All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now my guess is that's a really familiar verse. And my guess is it's so familiar that some of you already realized what I did with my definition or description of a disciple. You kind of see where we're going. Well, let me give you a little context to this verse. This is Paul writing, and Paul is writing to a pastor named Timothy, who, I, if I remember correctly, he's in Ephesus. And he's, he knows he's in, his, his death is impending. He knows he's going to be put to death in the near future. He doesn't know how long, but he says, any, any day now I'm going to be poured out like a drink offering. And so he's got like this one last shot, possibly maybe more, but it might be the last one. And so he's going to tell Tim, Pastor Timothy, this is, what, this is what you ought to be doing. This is what you've got to remember. 
And now what is he? Pastor Timothy's a man of God. Okay, He's the one in the church who's leading the church and shepherding the church. And he says, listen, Timothy, as you disciple the believers in your church, remember that the word of God is profitable. Now, if a man who knew his death was coming tells a person who does discipleship full-time that the thing that will profit you in discipleship is God's word, does that seem like something we all ought to pay attention to? I would think so. Many of our employment situations hinge on making a profit. I used to be a window cleaner, and I would bid jobs. If you have any sort of a a job where you have to go out and estimate what it's going to be to do the job, you know what I'm talking about. And so I would count windows, and I'd, how high are they, and like, you know, where are they at? And I would try to make my best guess at what it would cost me to do that job and then charge a little extra so I'm making some profit. But I don't want to go too high, or the guy down the street will undercut me and take the job. So it's like this balancing act. If you're in construction, if you're in any kind of repair, if you're your own business, you know what this is like. And so the goal is to have profit or extra or stuff that, I mean, the the profit is the stuff that I don't have to use to pay for the job, and now I can take it and I can live off of it. And so it's the same idea here. Paul's telling Timothy, look, the thing that will keep your discipleship alive is God's word. It's what you need. So I want to walk through these different phrases and talk about how they relate I'm going to do this first. I'm going to put it up like this. We talked about a growing disciple earlier, and I said it's one who knows and studies the word. What's one of the first ways the word of God profits you? It gives instruction to the believer. I said a growing disciple is one who knows when they're sinning or at least has a way to know when they're sinning. What does the word of God do? It rebukes believers. A growing disciple is someone who knows how to get back on track after they realize they've strayed from the path. What does the word of God do? It corrects the believer. And a disciple is someone who consistently grows in righteousness. And what does the prophet of the word of God lead to? It trains the believer in righteous living. And so do you see the parallel here? I think when Timothy is being told, use the word, use the scripture because it's profitable, the end product, the complete man, the man of God, that's a picture of a disciple. And so if you want to be a disciple today, I think we need to look seriously at this verse, which also means some of you may have seen this before. You've read this verse before. It's nothing new. For some of you, this might be even your first time seeing the verse. I would just say this. This is what I think about the scriptures. Proverbs chapter 1, verses 4, uh, 5, and 6 says that the wisdom in the Proverbs, which if there's wisdom elsewhere in the Bible, I would expect it to be similar. The wisdom in the Proverbs will help simple, naive, uh, green you know, wet behind the ears, people become wise. But then it says, if the wise come and read this, they'll become still wiser. So there's no point in your Christian life you don't need to hear the same thing again and again and again. Until that sinful heart is totally removed from you, you're going to need to hear this repeatedly. And so today, if this is a 10th, 15th, 20th time for this passage, hey, meditate on it. And it's easy for you. You can just check out, forget what I'm saying, and start asking yourself. Apply this to your own life right now, but maybe you haven't heard of this. This is going to be important. All right, so I think the Word of God is essential. This is why. Number one, the text says the Word of God is essential for instruction. It's essential for instruction. There's nothing fancy about this Word. It's just teaching. That's it. 
You know, sometimes a speaker comes and you hear they're a Greek teacher and that you're thinking they're going to like look up some magical thing you've never heard of about the Bible and no translator ever got it until today when Mr. Stearns came to camp. No, <laughs> it just means teaching. Instruction. Now, my, I was using the ESV mostly here. Um, it says in instruction in some translations. Other Bibles of yours might say doctrine. Anyone's Bible say doctrine? It's the same idea. It's kind of the combination of both the teaching and then like, like you're, you're doing the act of teaching and it's also like the content of the teaching, okay? So like what I teach and that I teach it is kind of all wrapped up in this word. It might lean a little bit toward the, the content being taught. It might lean in that direction, but it's kind of encompassing the whole thing. So I'm gonna, I'll say like this, uh, we all want profit, right? And so if I want to know how to live... Where do I turn every day in my life? For some of us, we will, without realizing it, turn to the nightly news. And whatever they tell us and whatever they say, or we will turn to some afternoon talk show that we listen to. They say, hey, you should do this, you got to act this way. Or For some people, I mean, maybe less so in this room, there's daytime psychologists who are on some show or whatever. And so people will turn to various places to receive instruction and they'll think it's profitable. But what Paul is telling Timothy here, and what we need to hear, is that the one thing that's truly going to profit us is God's Word. Now imagine, you're, you're talking to someone in your church, and uh, they got a problem. I don't know what the problem is. Um, they like to steal things at the gas station. There you go. And they like to steal packs of gum specifically. I don't know. Okay, it's a sin. And so they come up to you and they say, I, really, I got this problem and I know it's a problem and I need help with it. I steal packs of gum all the time. And you're like, yeah, I'd love to help you. And you guys have a conversation and you start having a conversation week by week helping this person. And as you look back after your third week, you realize something. You've never really referenced the Bible. You haven't referenced God's word. You've never taken them to any passage that talks about stealing or theft. In fact, you just said, look, if you steal like this and you get caught, you're going to get a fine, it's going to be on your record, your life will be horrible. Well, that's not terrible advice. It's very practical day-to-day -day advice, but what does God's word actually say about stealing? In Ephesians chapter 4, it says you don't steal, and if you do, you stop stealing, you work hard, and why do you do that? So you have extra, and you can give it to someone who's in need. Man, stealing is inherently self-centered. Have you addressed that at all? So there can be times where well-meaning Christians try to help people, but they're not actually referencing the Bible. And so I would think that this is going to say that if you're giving people instruction, if you're discipling one another and you're not ever referencing the Bible, I think your discipleship is probably not, or at least it's very deficient. Now at the same time, like I said earlier, when I talk to someone about discipleship, I'm not going to exegete three past chapters of Leviticus every single day or something like that, okay? But I should be able to clearly point to the, the word of God and say, friend, brother in Christ, you need to do what God's word says. You know, sometimes it's that you don't know something's wrong. It's that you, you don't really know. And so for my own example here, uh, I, was, I was like a really lewd jokester back in the day, like totally raunchy, like teen comedies that were just they would have like an R rating because of language, okay? That was the kind of thing I loved in high school. 
And so I would go to all the horrid movies, and all of my jokes that I made with my friends were some type of a sexual innuendo. And I remember thinking, I had like that, that like kind of weird feeling right about here. It's your conscience. I didn't know this, okay? And like a little bit of vague guilt and shame, but, but I remember telling myself, but I'm not doing those things. It's fine. And uh, so I was about four or five years later, I'm in a Bible institute out east, and I'm doing my devotions, and I'm in, I believe it's Ephesians chapter 4 or 5, and then directly after that, I don't know how, I was in Colossians. And uh, in one of those two books, it says there should be no foolish talk or coarse jesting, which is unfitting for like the people of God or the children of God. Coarse jesting. What's coarse jesting? I remember thinking like jesting, like a jester, like a court jester. That's like the guy who makes jokes in a court, like a king's court. And I remember thinking courses. Well, I knew that was like, wait a second, hold on, hold on. That almost sounds like the Bible's talking about dirty joking. Is this really happening? And I remember like thinking this was not possible. And then I remember reading the next book, and it said the only thing you should be saying is that which builds one another up. You shouldn't be, and it was some other uh, phrasing that was clearly talking about lewd and inappropriate words. And I remember like, here I am, like I'm 21, and I had no idea that stuff was a problem. Why? I didn't know my Bible. Like, I just didn't know. So part of discipleship, if you have the opportunity to disciple, is don't assume they don't know. Like, get into the Word and study it, because it may be that they just don't know something. Now, I did know something, didn't I? I knew my conscience was active. I knew something felt weird about this. So what should I have done? Obey my conscience until it's clear and I know better. But I didn't. So if you're going to disciple, you've got to be tied to the Word. I think the next thing that's essential is rebuking. It's the, the word of God is essential for rebuking. Now, this is, it literally is the word like that would be conviction. So I'm convicting you. Now, if someone goes to court and they get convicted, there's a preponderance of evidence that says they are guilty of committing a crime or something illegal. And it's the same thought here. If you get convicted by the word, it's saying, I now know that what I'm doing is wrong. And it's been proven to me through God's word. Now, that's exactly what happened to me with my, my raunchy humor. Whoa, I didn't know this was wrong, and I just got convicted. I, in a sense, got rebuked. That's the other word here, is, is to rebuke someone. It's, it's someone telling you you're doing the wrong thing. Um, another commentary says, it's, it's, this is like, um, the Greek word here means you're exposing someone else's sin, in order to bring correction. You're exposing someone else's sin in order to bring correction. So I think there's two things, two things we want to talk about here, okay? Number one, I expose sin. Now, this is tricky because sometimes there's sins that are motivation. Like the, the thing you're doing isn't necessarily wrong, but I suspect maybe you're motivated by anger, okay? I'm not going to walk up and say, you're angry. Like, I got to ask some questions. Like, I'm not God. I know that shocks you. But it shouldn't, because I'm not. I don't have 100% omniscient knowledge of everything going on. I, definitely not in your soul, hardly at all in my own soul. So if I see you do something and I suspect your motivations, that what I need to do is ask questions. Now God, who is omniscient, how did he confront Adam and Eve? He knew their motivation. He knew for sure what they were doing, and he asked questions. Why did God ask a question if he already knew the answer? Well, it wasn't for God's benefit. It was for Adam and Eve's benefit. And I think there's a principle there. Look at Nathan and David. Look at other places in Scripture. 
I think asking questions is, the, is a very biblical way to begin a rebuke for someone. So if you see someone doing something, you're like, I don't think that is proper. I don't think that's what God's word says. Uh, don't walk up and say, hey, you sinner, okay? Like, walk up and ask a question. So I know that place I was at, was they had a camp, the Bible Institute, and uh, literally one of the other unit leaders of the camp, we were all unit leaders, said, hey, did those guys just come in? We're like, yeah, why? And he's like, ah, I told them they couldn't until they got their cabin clean. And he walks off and he yells, hey, you sinners! <laughs> it was, now, it was a joke, but it was really funny because they legitimately were disobeying. But, but I'm just saying, don't do that, okay? Don't walk up to your buddy and be like, hey, you sinner! Or, or like, maybe you both know it's a joke and then it's okay. I don't know. Um, but it's, so you're trying to expose sin. Now, some things are very easy to expose. They're, they're black and white objective. You still want to be gentle. But why do you expose the sin? So that you can bring the correction from God's word. Now, here's the thing. How many times do I see a sin and I'm ready to go expose it because I'm mad about it? Right? Like, they did that. They shouldn't have done that. That's wrong. And then you're going to go expose them. Is that, is that the right motivation? So you see, I've got to have the right motivation, but I can't let my, my wrong motivation stop me. I've got to get myself right, and then I've got to do this. Imagine if only your pastor was allowed to rebuke people in your church and correct them. Do you understand how busy your poor pastor would be? Because we are all really bad sinners. But that's not how God designed the body to work, the church. We're supposed to be in this together. We're supposed to be helping one another. So we need to rebuke, and the only way you can do that is with the Word of God. All right, thirdly, the Word of God is essential for correction. This is you you're restoring the person to an upright state. It's a companion to the word rebuking, but it's emphasizing the other side, like the behavioral part. So you can almost think of these two as a coin. Like we often talk about repentance and faith as two sides of the same coin. I would say these are almost like that. When I rebuke you, it would be very hard for me to rebuke you without then saying this is what you should have done or without you realizing I think this is what you should have done. But again, if you don't know the word, you might think this is what you should do and you might be wrong. So you really got to know the word. You got to know your word. And you got to be in the word. And then lastly, why is the word essential to discipleship? Because it's essential if you're going to help train someone in righteousness. Only the word can do these things. I think that's the point we're trying to make. I can walk up and tell you you're wrong. I can tell you the right way to live. And I can try to hold you to account. I can have accountability relationship with you. But at the end of the day, if it's only me saying it, I don't really care what I say. Like if you have some great opinions, but they're not based on the word, they're going in my ear and out. That's it. But as a believer, I want to know what God's word says. And so you can be a real help to your brother or sister in Christ, uh, brother here in this context, by exposing the sin through, hey, this is what God's word says. I noticed you did this. Do you, is that line up to you? Or like, tell me what you think about that. Is that am I off base here? And uh, don't you think, like, it seems like God's word would say we should do this. Like, do you think that's true? And, like, what were you thinking when you did that, man? Can I, can I pray for you? Can I help you? That should be a very regular thing that happens in our, in our, in our churches. Um, but really, honestly, why do, we not, um, why do we not do that? What's that? Shame or embarrassment. Yeah, I think sometimes we're like afraid and we don't want to like talk about that with someone or we ourselves might, maybe we do the same thing and who am I, okay? Anything, any other reasons? Fear of man. Fear of man, yeah. I think sometimes I'm really afraid of what you're going to think and 
Uh, there's two ways that goes. Like, I want you to think highly of me. That might be one. And then the other one might be just, I really idolize my happy friendship with you. And I just want happy friendship. I don't want hard friendship. And so because I only want the happy friendship and not the hard friendship, I don't want to do the things God's asking me to do. Now, see, just this conversation ought to be rebuking my own heart. Uh, but the other thing is, is we're dudes. And we kind of have this thing called um, an ego. Like, we like to kind of think we're doing a good job, and we kind of have some pride. And, man, I'll tell you what, when someone comes to me and says, you're doing the wrong thing, it's never the first response in my soul is never, yes. I was waiting for someone to come tell me something like this today, but it had been going so boringly like me doing a good job at all of my life's things. Oh, I'm so glad you're here to tell me I'm wrong. Thank you. That doesn't happen with guys. Like, we're kind of like, we kind of like to think we got it all going on. Here's a good example of this. So um, my brother in Christ, he's a pastor in the state, good, good friend of mine. Uh, before he was a pastor and I was a teacher, and we were just attending church together, um, Obama was president. And Obama did something that I thought was reprehensible or dumb or stupid or whatever. And so I took to social media and said what I thought about that. And I didn't say it like, oh, I strongly disagree with my president's uh, policy here. I think I said something like, this guy's an idiot, you know, totally slanderous on public uh, social media. Now, today, most of you are like, okay, because that's very, like, par for Twitter, okay? Like, you're on Twitter, you're just ripping people to shreds. Social media is just all about slander and then log out and go do what you want because you're never going to have to look at the person. So I remember doing this, and my brother did exactly this whole thing for me in, like, three Facebook messages. He's like, Andy, Andy, what about honoring the king, man? Next one, you know, we got to honor the king, brother. Like, next one, like, are you honoring the king? And then he sent me my Facebook post. And man, that instructed me. Oh, you know what I just did? I slandered. It totally rebuked me because here's the verse. I mean, he's referencing Second Peter or First Peter three, excuse me, or two or three. It's right in there. And for, in, in First Peter, things are no no one's friendly with the church. Okay, like Nero is about to come to power, and things are getting ugly for the church. And what does Peter say in that context? Honor the king. Honor the emperor. Love the brotherhood. Who do you fear, though? You fear God. And you honor the king. And so he didn't say rebel. He didn't say have a revolution. He didn't say fight back. He didn't say attack. He said, live quietly and entrust yourself to the one who judges justly. Okay? And so here, what was I doing? I wasn't doing that. And he rebuked me because I knew this is exactly not what Peter said. In fact, I had taught him that in Sunday school like the year before. And then I knew exactly what I needed to do because we talked about it before. I got to take the post down. And so, do you know what the first thought was in my heart when I got those Facebook messages? Bad words toward him. <laughs> I'm, I don't know if I swore, but I was like mad. Like, oh, what a, come on, you, you know, like that was my flesh welled up. But what ought I do? What should I really want? I should want friends who love me that much. I should want friends who love me so much that they'll risk my friendship because of my pride, not their, my pride, to tell me what I need to hear. Now, guys, that's what we need to do for each other. 
We got to do it gently, okay? He didn't, he didn't call me an idiot. He didn't slander me. He said, he was asking me questions. He was appealing. I could tell from the tone. Like, how did he write that so I could hear his tone? Like, that's so hard in words to, like, say things like that. But, man, he did a really good job. So I think we need the word for this. And I think this just goes to show that all of these activities are not solo. You can't do this by yourself. You can't do this alone. You need other believers. All right, here's personal testimony. Here's where I'm going to really try to sell you on using the word in discipleship. Um, So I have students come in from time to time or have people who are my friends and we'll we'll try to do this disciply thing. And students specifically, I had this one guy come in and he wanted to talk and uh, he would come in and tell me his life's problems and I would think about all the problems and I'm trying to sort them out and trying to think how to answer them and I'm giving answers and it's the first couple of times, like, he'd leave, and I'm like, did that really help? I just, I had this, like, ugh, cringy feeling like that just not, didn't work well. And so by the fourth time or something, I thought, I really need to, I wonder if we could go through a chapter together in the Bible. Maybe that would be better. And so he comes in, and he starts unloading. And um, I didn't know what to do, and I didn't know where to go. And I said, hey, such and such, could we, man, your life's really hard, and, and we, we need wisdom. Could, could we look at God's word together for a minute? And uh, I'm telling you, no, no believer who wants to walk with God has ever heard that question and said no. And never are they like, okay, fine. It's always like, yeah, let's do it. Let's get into the Word. Like, they want to. And so we dig into the Word. It was Ephesians chapter 4. We started in 16, and we just walked through the sanctification section. And I'm telling you, it didn't specifically answer anything he had said. And so I thought, this is not helping. This isn't going anywhere. And he got done. He had this quizzical look on his face. And... Uh, he's like, okay, okay, yeah, I got to go. And I'm like, okay. And, and he left, and I thought nothing happened. But I found out later as we kept going that that was one of the, like, the turning points for him. And I remember thinking, like, it didn't answer any of his questions. It talked about something totally other, but I learned a lesson. Every time I'm lost in a conversation, I'm like, hey, let's open God's word. And even if the passage doesn't relate to guys studying God's word who want to grow, it's like the perfect recipe for discipleship. And looking back, I finally figured it out. There's not much that I can say that has any eternal value. But God's word is eternal. And God's word is something else. It's his word, not mine. And so I've learned, if you're in a situation like this, even if the passage doesn't relate, get to the word as quick as you can and chew it up and eat it up and study it together. Now, let's say you want to do this. I would love it if, as you leave, you, you're like, I'm going to do this. You write it down, you pick someone, and boom, you're going to go do this weekly. All right, this helped me. I've started to learn to ask word-centered questions if I'm in this kind of a scenario. All right, number one, what's God been teaching you this week, you know, in his word? Now, again, not an audible voice that speaks to you. Or like you go into a trance and God gives you a vision. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying like you read the word the way God intended and the spirit convinces you or convicts you of stuff. That's been a very fruitful question. I would recommend it. If you're like, man, I need to do this with guys in my church, great question. Number two, how is the word challenging your thinking right now? If you're in the word, at some point something's going to be read and you're going to say, wait. That's not how I'm living my life, like me when I used to make all the dirty jokes, and I didn't think it was a problem. I knew it was wrong to do those things, but to joke about them? I mean, later he says you shouldn't even name the things that are done in darkness. All right, and then thirdly, where is the Bible 
Where has the Bible given you hope and encouragement? This is one of my favorite ones because uh, when my wife got diagnosed with stage three or four cancer, I think it was probably four because he didn't want to tell us which one it was, and it was in all the organs. Um, and she's fine. She's recovered. Okay. Uh, she, she was going through chemotherapy. It was a good prognosis because the cancer responds well to chemo, but it was really, really serious by the time we got it discovered. I mean, the, the tumor was huge. Um, during those, that like the specifically like the year leading up and then the year and a half after, but the six months of chemotherapy specifically, I found out how encouraging the Psalms are. Man, if you suffer, if you go through difficulty, just abandon your Bible reading plan for a while and dig into David's Psalms. He says what you want to say to God. He strengthens you. He, he says in words the very things that you're probably thinking, and then he turns you back to trust in God. Man, you ask that question, and that someone who's walking a path of suffering, that can be a really encouraging thing for them. Okay, so then what do you practically do? All right, I'll give you a couple of ideas and a few helps. <clears throat> I think, and I don't know if this is a technical definition, but when I think of discipleship, I'm basically thinking of two people who have fellowship around God's word. That's it. I really think like there's more technical definitions, there's more specific, there's situational, but I think on the whole, that's what I would say what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. Now, does that lead to living a certain way? Does that lead to a great commission? Yes, it does, but I think like fundamentally that's where we're at. So I would say pick another guy, and start reading the Bible together. I think back to every time I sat down and read the word with another guy who wanted to grow, and I can't think of one time where I was like, that was a waste of my time. And almost all of them, I, I come away thinking like, man, I should play less video games and do this more, you know, or I should watch less TV and do this more. You won't be sad. Number two, study a chapter a week. Now, you could like really deeply study it, and you could get into the Greek and all that, or you could just... Look at all the things the passage says and take notes on it and then talk about what you studied. Even that is going to get you more familiar with the instruction of God's word and what it says and be a huge blessing and help to you. Uh, thirdly, uh, here are some Bible study questions that might help you guide your study. So these questions, uh, a friend of mine gave them to me and now I teach them in my Bible study class at Faith because I teach inductive Bible study. All right, number one, what does the text say? And this is the obvious one, but if you ask it long enough, you'll see there's all kinds of things in that chapter that you weren't paying attention to and you didn't notice until you asked that question. What's it saying? Number two, what does it mean? And here I'm mostly thinking about the original audience. Like, what did it mean to Timothy when Paul told him these things? Well, Timothy might have been a struggling pastor not knowing how to handle the church. And Paul's saying, look, Timothy, Get into the word because it's profitable for all these things you're going to do. Now imagine if Timothy had been, I mean, he knew the word from a young age. His, his mother and grandmother had taught him. But imagine if he had like strayed from that and then Paul says this and he started diving into the word and what kind of difference do you think he would have noticed in the church? I would expect he would have noticed a difference. And so what did it mean to the original audience? That is going to help you understand then what does it mean for you today? What does it mean for you today? So those three questions are really helpful. It's basically the first one is st the step of observation. The second one is the step of interpretation. The third one is the step of application, if you're familiar with inductive Bible study. And then this will be the last thing I'll end on. Here's some resources that I recommend every time I talk about Bible study. This book is called The Knowable Word, and it's by a man named Peter Kroll. 
It's like 92 pages. It's really small, and it's only about this big. So it's not like 92 big pages. It's like little. And it just walks you through how to study the Bible. And it could be today that you don't know how to study the Bible. Or you think you do, and now you're getting the suspicion that maybe I'm missing something. Uh, a friend of mine, one of the other guys who is on the podcast I'm on, uh, his, he got saved in high school, and his family was unsaved. And he prayed for his dad for a long, long time that his dad would get saved. And his dad finally got saved when he turned 60. And he totally, his life totally changed. And his dad, from that point on, made it a point to study the word as regularly as he could. He'd meet with his pastor. He'd talk with his son. And at first, he didn't know what to do. And he had to ask and get help. And, you know, he's 60. He could have thought, I'm 60. I'm embarrassed. But you know what? He didn't. He just dove in and he tried to learn. So let me explain. I probably got saved when I was three. I think I, I asked Jesus into my heart, which is not the way that should work. Um, but I do think I was really trusting him as my substitute to save me from my sin. And I think I was putting my faith in him because after that, I really was trying to live the Christian life. Um, but I grew sporadically and not much until I started realizing I need to study God's word. And do you know how that happened, actually? My dad every day went to McDonald's to study the Bible. He never, never even talked to me about it most of the time. Um, and when my, I had this crisis of faith as a 19-year-old, I realized I need to know what the Bible says because then I would know what God says. And it clicked. My dad has gotten up every day for years during the week, and first thing he does is he goes study the Bible. Talking about imitation, man, that hit me like a ton of bricks as a 19-year-old. I need to be studying the Word too. Totally sold me, totally convinced me. And so this book, if you don't know how to study the Bible, maybe you've been a Christian your whole life and you don't know, that's okay. Get this book. It's, a, it's low commitment. It's not technical. All right, but if you're only going to pick one book, this is the one I really recommend. Uh, Howard Hendricks is like a public speaker. He's entertaining. He's easy to listen to. He has great illustrations. It's, it's a longer book. It's like 200 pages or so. Um, but you and a buddy could read through this and get lots of practical, easy advice to know how to study God's Word. I would totally recommend it. I recommend this book everywhere I go. I use it as a textbook for college students. Uh, even though it's probably mid to late high school level, it's still, it's probably one of the best books you can read. Um, on top of that, uh, I would say that you could just get a book to read on a topic and read it a chapter a week. Uh, just on some issue, if you're like, I don't know about diving into the Bible yet, we'll get a book that talks about the Bible and read that together, and then say, hey, how did this help? One time a guy recommended that Robin and I read, my wife, uh, a book on suffering called uh, Trusting God When Life is Hard by Jerry Bridges or Life Hurts. And so we'd read one chapter a week separately, and then we'd have these questions we'd talk about. It was great. I loved it. Now you might say, well, I don't know what book to pick. You know who you could ask? You should ask your pastor. Do you want to make his day? I guarantee you there's no pastor that's like, if you came back from the men's conference, you're like, you know, me and such and such want to get together and do a book study. What's a good book you'd recommend that we could read? Watch his eyes. He'll be like, I mean, this is what he prays about and dreams about. He, he wants you to talk to him about what he's reading, and so he'll give you something, and you read it, and then go and tell him about it. I mean, it's going to be like, he doesn't need to raise that. No, he does need to raise. But he'll just be so happy about it, you know. Um, he really does need to raise. Um... There's a lot of audio options, too. Like maybe you don't have a lot of time to get into the Word, but you're a truck driver or a window cleaner or a construction guy. When I was a window cleaner, I listened to podcasts and audio Bibles and audio books all the time. And so I just discovered the camp has all the messages in the podcast app 
podcast app that lives in your phone. So on the way up here, I literally listened to Cody Huber talk about a biblical worldview. I think it was at Junior Boys this year, maybe. Um, man, it was good. What, it was Family Five? Okay, see, I didn't remember. But it was really good. And what was I doing? I was driving. If I wasn't listening to that, what would I have listened to? Radio? My own blathering thoughts? <laughs> hey, let me put some truth in my life. That'd be way better. Now, maybe you and your friend both have jobs like that. Listen to the same sermon. Pick a sermon, listen to it, and talk about it. Um, our school puts all of its chapel on the website. I'm not trying to promote our school like because we're the best. I'm just saying, like, if you're looking for sermons, go there. All the churches in the room probably have audio sermons up online. If you told your pastor, hey, we listened to your sermon two more times this week and talked about it, I mean, he spends a lot of time on those things. So, anyways, there's lots of them out there. And, yes, I do a podcast. Uh, and we talk a lot about, like, Bible study. It is a shameless plug. I mean, you can say that. We do talk a lot about Bible study. That's why I'm bringing it up. So if you don't know about Bible study, all we're doing is studying the Bible. And it's like 20 minutes, a half hour most of the time, and it'd be, I think, a blessing to you. So, okay, thanks for listening. It's 11.31. It's time to eat, right? All right, let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for your word, God. Above all, thank you for your word. Lord, um, I and many others have often prayed like this, that we're so thankful we have the opportunity to freely gather right now and devote ourselves to studying your word. And we'll often say things like, people in other parts of the world don't have the same opportunity. And Lord, in these recent days, how that has become so apparently obvious. Right now, Father, if we were to download these podcast apps to our phone, and we were in Afghanistan, and the Taliban found them, Lord, we, it, very bad things would happen to us. Let alone if we all met publicly like this to gather, to devote ourselves to the word. Father, it would be very difficult and very dangerous. Lord, you have given us a blessing. You have given us an opportunity that they don't have. I pray, Father, that we would not misappropriate it. Misappropriate it. We would not poorly steward it, God. I pray that we would make the most of it. This week, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to find someone else to study the word together with. We love you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.